God grant that that prayer may be answered to all who truly offered it. And that that might be helped, let us consider together the words that are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 13, verses 31, 32, and 33. The 13th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, verses 31 to 33. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence. For Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish out of Jerusalem. Let me read those words again. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out devils and I do cures, today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Now, there is nothing that is more important for us whenever we read the Bible than to remember that it is the Word of God, that it is a uniquely inspired Word uh, containing truth that is different in its very nature and essence from every other kind of truth. So that whenever we come to read this book, we must remind ourselves of that. It is important sometimes that we should prepare ourselves for the reading even of secular books. But when we come to this, read this book, it is absolutely essential. Because here... Everything is important. Everything has its meaning. Everything has its significance. The result is that when we come to read the Bible, we must never regard anything as unimportant, as mere connecting link, as it were, something thrown in to make the story complete. We must realize that everything is the Word of God, and therefore we should always be looking for a meaning or a significance. For you will find, as you read the Bible, that suddenly in what appear to be at first, uh, at the first glance, uh, most unexpected places, you will find important and vital truth. That's what makes the reading of the Bible such a romantic procedure always. You remember Shakespeare's word, turn but a stone and start a wing? Well, if you come to the Bible correctly, you will constantly be having that sort of experience. You'll come across a statement that seems on the surface, I say, to contain no truth at all, just uh, an actual report of something that happened, but uh, which seems at first uh, to be devoid of any scriptural truth or any great uh, doctrine or anything that is vital to our salvation. 
But be careful, I say. Turn but a stone and start a wing. Look at it carefully. Seek for its hidden meaning. And you will suddenly and quite unexpectedly find that something startling suddenly appears before you. Something that is of vital importance to your soul and your eternal destiny. Now, what we're looking at tonight, I think, can be accurately put into some such category as that. As you read these uh, three verses, uh, at first you feel, well, that's all right, no doubt that happened, but uh, it's got nothing to say to me. It's a detail, historical detail, no doubt, in the life of our Lord and Savior. But it has no relevance to me today and to my present state and condition. But that is a very great and a very grievous fallacy. For I hope to show you that if we take the trouble to investigate what we are told in these three verses, we shall find ourselves face to face with very profound and very vital truth. What is it? Well, it's a picture, you see, of our Lord confronting and handling certain of his enemies. The central thing here, of course, in the three verses, the striking thing, is the great message about our Lord himself, the glory of his person, the glory of his message, the glory of his work. But that is shown here in a rather unusual and somewhat striking manner. It is shown in this way. It is shown in the failure of his enemies to see this truth about him and to realize who he was and why he had come into the world and what he could do. That's how it's shown. His glory, his perfection, his majesty is shown to us in this form of a contrast. The utter abject failure of these Pharisees and King Herod to realize who he was and his essential glory. Now, I'm calling attention to this, of course, for this reason. That this is not only a, a true record of history. It's something much more than that. Here we are introduced to a principle which teaches us that all the trouble that men and women seem to have about believing this Christian message and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately arises from one great cause, and it's, that is this difficulty about realizing who he is and what he is. You see, the world is full of people still who say, well, I'm not a Christian and I can't be a Christian. I wish I could say some of them. I'm dealing with them particularly tonight. I mean the kind of people who correspond to these Pharisees who came here and spoke to our Lord. These Pharisees did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're outside the Christian church. 
But nevertheless, they were always crowding round him and always putting questions to him. They couldn't leave him alone. That's the great record that we get in the pages of these four Gospels. Wherever he was, they went and they watched him and they tried to catch him and they put their questions to him. They were baffled by him. They were troubled by him. But they remained outside. Now I say there are large numbers of people like that today. They are the modern Pharisees. They don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not Christians. Yet they can't leave him alone. They can't leave his faith alone. They're always talking about it. They're always asking questions. They're doing in this age exactly what these Pharisees did so long ago. Now, my proposition this evening is this. That there's only one cause for that kind of trouble. And that is... They've never seen him. They don't know him. They've missed the glory. Oh, they, like the ancient Pharisees, will say, no, no, that isn't it at all. I'm in trouble about this or that, the supernatural, the miraculous, the two natures in the... They say they've got a multiplicity of difficulties. All I'm saying by way of reply is this, that rarely to meet him is to cause all these separate individual difficulties to vanish as the morning mist does between, before the rising sun. They all just disappear. There is only one key to the multiplicity of problems. It is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I'm holding it before you in the hope that looking on objectively, someone in this congregation who may be in that position or in that condition may see the whole thing. I trust you'll see yourself in the picture I'm going to hold you before you of the Pharisees. And then I trust it will create a feeling of abhorrence and disgust in you that you should be like that at all. And that'll help your eyes to be opened that you may see him and look at him without your prejudices and your preconceived notions and seeing something of his glory will fall down at his feet and begin to receive those blessings that he alone can give. Now, here we are, approaching the season of Good Friday and Easter, the period of the year that reminds us of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross on Calvary's hill, his burial in a grave, and his subsequent resurrection. This incident, I say, helps to focus our attention upon him and especially upon those crucial events and happenings in his earthly life and history. Very well, all I have to do this evening is to hold two pictures before you. The first is the miserable picture of this King Herod and the Pharisees. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence for Herod. King Herod is going to kill you. Now, here they are, you see, Herod and the Pharisees. They're agreed about one thing, and that is their desire to get rid of him. There were great differences between the Herod party, the Herodians, and the Pharisees. You can read the history for yourselves. The king's party, the Herodians, had a very different point of view on many, many subjects from the Pharisees. 
The Herodians were primarily politicians. These others were people who studied the law and were the religious leaders and authorities and teachers. On the surface, there were many differences between them. But you will find as you read the Gospels that they were made one when they confronted Jesus Christ. They were both equally opposed to him. And so they are on this occasion here. Though on the surface it looks as if they're not. But I'll show you in a moment how they were, both parties, equally anxious to get rid of him. Now here I want to make a preliminary observation. Isn't there something almost incredible about this? Here stands the Son of God in all his nobility and the glory of his person, the one who was always going about and doing good, the thing people say they're interested in. They don't want doctrine. They say they want practical goodness. If ever one lived to do practical goodness, it was this Jesus of Nazareth, healing the sick, having time always to commiserate and to be compassionate towards those who are in trouble and in need. Oh, as Peter says, he went about doing good. The smoking flax he did not quench, and the bruised reed he did not break. Nobody could rarely bring any charge against him. They tried to do so, but they couldn't. They couldn't establish it. There was nothing to be said against him. And yet look at these miserable people. Trying to trip him and to trap him, trying to get rid of him. What a sad, I say, what a sorry picture it presents to us. What was the matter with these people? Why did they behave like this? Why did they react like this to this blessed Son of God, the greatest benefactor that this world has ever known? Well, the answers are given us here quite plainly. There were two main reasons for their trouble. The first was this, and I want to emphasize it again. They seem to have been utterly blind to the evidence that was staring them in the face. What do you mean, says someone? Well, our Lord here reminds them of the evidence. Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils. He means, I am going on to cast out devils and to do cures today and tomorrow. That's the evidence. And they knew that it was the evidence. Before their very eyes, he had been doing these very things. He had been casting out devils. People were brought to him devil-possessed. Nobody could do anything with them. Think of the men of Gadara, a legion of devils. They'd bound him with fetters and with chains. They'd done everything, but they couldn't tame him. At a word from our Lord, he's to be seen seated and clothed and in his right mind. Look at the boy at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a boy, call him epileptic if you like, call him what you like. But there was a boy for whom nothing could be done. Even the disciples of our Lord couldn't do anything for him. Yet in a moment, our Lord exercises, drives out the devil, and the boy is restored to his father. Cast out devils, likewise with miracles, healing the sick giving sight to the blind, raising the dead, calming the raging storm at sea. All these things were happening before their eyes. And yet they couldn't see it. 
What was the matter with these people? Why couldn't they work out the logic of the position that was confronting them? Surely the obvious thing to say was this. Who is this man? Whence this power? The common people said that. They said, we have seen strange things today. They detected even a note in his authority. They said, this man speaks with authority, not as the Pharisees and scribes. Whence has come this knowledge to him? He's not a Pharisee. He's not trained in their schools. He's a carpenter. We know he's a lowly man, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, then the obvious question to ask was this, well, how does he do it? What is the explanation of this power, this exercising of devils, this working of healing miracles? What is this? How does he get it? What's the explanation? The evidence was staring them in the face as he reminds them. But you see, they were so blinded by prejudice, they never even looked at it. They'd got preconceived notions and ideas. They were arguing about certain odd points on which they were very keen, and they never faced him. That's what men and women are still doing. They start with their theories and their ideas. They've never really looked at Christ and tried to explain him because he can't be explained except in one way, and that is that he is the Son of God. Oh, did you notice how it was put there in that passage which we read at the beginning tonight in this 12th chapter of John's Gospel? Though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. It was in spite of the evidence that they didn't believe. They were blinded by their prejudices. That is still the sole explanation of why any individual is not a Christian. No, no, but you say, it isn't that, you know, it's my brain, it's my intelligence. But my dear friend, there are people with equal brains and intelligence who do believe in him. So it can't be that. Ah, but you say, it's my knowledge. It's my knowledge of science. There are men who have greater knowledge than you have of science who do believe in him. It can't be that. No, no, there's only one explanation. It is this tragic blindness. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the eyes and the minds of them that believe not, lest they believe the glorious gospel of Christ. It's the old trouble of the Pharisees. The evidence was there. They couldn't see it. Preoccupied with these other things, they couldn't see what was staring them in the face. It is still the trouble. And that, of course, in turn, led to the second thing which comes out so plainly in these three verses. What was that? Well, of course, failing to realize who he was and what was true about him. They then naturally exaggerated their own powers and their own abilities. What do you mean, says someone? Well, I mean this. These people thought that they could deceive him. The very Pharisees that came to him with this statement about Herod, these men who told him, get out of here, Herod's going to kill you. You know, as they were saying it, they really believed they were deceiving him. They always thought they could deceive him. You read the four Gospels. You'll find that these Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and doctors of the law were always absolutely confident when they came with their questions. They pretended to be quite honest. They thought they were taking him in. They'd got a catch in the question. They wanted him to commit himself. But he always knew, he said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? 
But they never realized it. They were so confident of their own cleverness. You know, this is why people are not Christians. The modern man thinks he's very clever in not being a Christian. Ah, he knows a thing or two, and he can be clever and subtle. Oh, the tragedy of this self-deception. That men and women should think that they can deceive the Son of God. They say, no, but you know, I really am interested. I'm not a hypocrite. No, I'm not pretending. I really am interested. My friend, the trouble with you is you're not. If you were really interested, you'd soon believe. The second thing is this. They think they can frighten him. Get thee out, they said, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And they expected him to go at once and say, thank you very much, and escape for his life. They really thought they could frighten him. They kept on thinking that. And thirdly, and of course most serious of all, they thought that they could foil him and his purpose and frustrate his plans. They're trying to move him, to get him out, to get him up to Jerusalem. They see he's working on a plan, and they really believe they've got it in their power to frustrate his plan. That, I suppose, is the ultimate sin. That men and women should think that they've got it in their power to frustrate the plans of Almighty God. To me, that is the one big explanation of what has been happening in this world during the last century. Man, in his knowledge, especially scientific knowledge, has been persuading himself that he really can do without God. Turned his back on God. He's ignoring God. He is going to run the world and do things as he wants to. But history is proving that he can't. God reigns, God rules, God is still there at the back. And nothing can frustrate the plan and the purpose of God. Men in his folly, like these Pharisees, he's trying to frustrate it, but they cannot. They never will. They've been trying throughout the running centuries, and the whole history of civilization is the failure of mankind to do so. The Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. These people were confident that they could frustrate his plans. Very well, there are the things that I see in King Herod and his followers and in these Pharisees who are allying themselves with him to bring their own purposes to pass. Let's turn from them. Let's look at the other picture, the picture of the Son of God. And doesn't he stand out by contrast in the majesty and the glory and the magnificence of his holy person. How miserably makes them look. There's not a suspicion of fear in his whole demeanor. Thought it terrifying. He just stands and smiles at them. Today and tomorrow I do cures, and the third day I shall be perfected. I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following. He just stands like a rock, and they're like the foolish waves, dashing themselves against him, imagining that they can knock him over and move him. Of course they cannot. Don't you see them? They're like moths around a candle, flying into him, thinking that they can put him out, only to singe their own wings and to fall back, finally dead. How miserable they look when they come up against the majesty 
and the glory of his person. Look at the masterly way in which he handles them. Telling them quietly and calmly that he's going on with what he has planned and what he has purposed and that uh, nothing can stop him. Nothing can stop him. There it is on the surface. But come, let me analyze it for you. What do we find in him? Well, the first remarkable thing one finds here is his extraordinary knowledge of men and of their minds and of their ways. I wonder whether you caught it as I read this text to you. Let me read it again to see if you get it. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, that fox, that's the emphasis, you know. I'm not manufacturing this. You experts on Greek, turn this text up for yourselves, and you'll find that that is exactly the meaning here. He doesn't say, go and tell that fox. Go and tell that fox. He's not the only fox. There are other foxes. Who are the others? Oh, the Pharisees would put the question unto whom he was speaking. In other words, he's saying, go and tell that fox, and you foxes listen at the same time. You see, he shows his knowledge of Herod and the Pharisees at one and the same time. What is he showing? Well, he's showing this. Our Lord knew perfectly well that Herod did not intend to kill him. No doubt Herod had let it be known that he was going to, but Herod didn't intend to. Herod was a coward, of course. You remember, he was this same Herod who was responsible for the death of John the Baptist. Oh, well, you say, but there he killed John the Baptist. I know he did it, but he didn't want to do it. For we are told about him that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a holy and a good man, and observed him. That means looked after him, tried to guard him. John was in prison. Herod did his utmost not to kill John the Baptist. But having made a foolish speech and having committed himself, he was trapped by the woman with whom he lived, and she put the message into the mouth of her daughter to get rid of John, and then for his oath's sake, and because he was a bit ashamed not to do what he said he'd do, he had to behead John the Baptist, but he was a man, he was a coward. He didn't enjoy killing people, he was afraid of killing people. But he was a man as a typical coward who could talk big, and he said he was going to kill Jesus. He didn't want to. All he really wanted was to get Jesus out of his own particular territory. For when these things were happening, Jesus was in the territory where Herod had a certain amount of authority and power. So he lets him know at once that he sees through him, and he therefore calls him a fox, knowing that this will be reported to Herod. What does he mean? Well, there are two things that are true about a fox, aren't there? The first thing is that he's cunning, that he's scheming, that he's clever. Sly fox. That's the great characteristic of the fox. It was the great characteristic of this man, Herod. You see, you pretend one thing in order to bring about the other. You try to put the hounds on a false scent. You pretend you're going that way when you want to go this way. You double on your tracks. The fox, cunning. And Herod, by thus... Letting it be known that he's going to kill the Lord Jesus Christ is just behaving like a fox. 
He doesn't intend it at all. But what he really wants is to get him out of his territory, to get him away from his place. He, he, he could see that he'd be in trouble again as he had been in the case of John the Baptist. Go and tell that fox. There's another characteristic of a fox, of course, and that is that he has none of the strength and the power of a lion. A fox lives on his wits. And as I've been explaining to you this, men, King Herod had always done that. He's a contemptible character. He wobbled and vacillated over the case of John the Baptist. He always did. You can't respect him. There's nothing big about him. There's no strength. He's a weakling. Go and tell that fox. In that pregnant phrase, he analyzes, unmasks, and reveals his knowledge of the character of this King Herod. But at the same time, as I'm indicating to you, he reveals his knowledge of the Pharisees. How does he do that? You say, well, like this. Here come the Pharisees saying to him, as, a, as would be friends, get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. They sound as if they're the friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't they? But they were not. They were his bitterest enemies. But here they are behaving like foxes also. They affect, they simulate an interest in his well-being and in his personal safety. They seem to be anxious to save him from death. But what were they really out for? Well, I can tell you, and our Lord knew it. That's why he calls them foxes also. What they wanted was this. They wanted to get him out of Herod's territory. And they wanted him to hurry up to Jerusalem. Why? Well, because they knew very well that if they could only get him to Jerusalem, they would soon encompass his death. They were already planning and plotting to put him to death. They'd never do it while he was up there, but once they get him to Jerusalem, they can bring in the draw in the net. They can put him on trial. They can put questions to him that will trap him. They'll trump up their case, and then they'll put it to the authorities, and thus they're going to get rid of him. Oh, the foxes! The sly foxes, pretending to be his enemies, but the whole time, much more anxious than miserable Herod was to kill him. Thus they dissimulate and pretend, but our Lord exposes it all. Tell that fox, and listen yourselves, you foxes. I know exactly what you're thinking and what is at the back of your mind. Thus he stands out. In all the glory and the magnificence of his holy personality, as a man who reads all men, all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He reads us as an open book. And when you and I are talking brilliantly and cleverly and voicing our objections against Christianity and talking about our difficulties, he is looking at your miserable life at your wretched moral failure, at the jealousy and the envy and the ugliness and the foulness that is in your heart. He knows all about us, and he knows that every one of us is a fox, a sham and a pretense, despicable, not rarely appearing as we actually and truly are. That fox. Then I mustn't stay to talk about his power, which he reminds them of. Exercising devils, healing, oh, there is no limit to this man's power. 
This is the Son of God. But let me hurry to the next thing. Which is, of course, one of the most remarkable things of all in this particular incident, and that is his teaching concerning his death. Have you noticed what he tells us here concerning his death? There are two main matters. The first is that his death did not come unexpectedly to him. It didn't take him by surprise at all. Many people think it did, you know, that here was this innocent, pure man just going about with his teaching and his doing good and these cruel people were plotting. And suddenly he finds himself arrested and his work comes to an end and he cries out in despair, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The end has come. It's all up. A failure. Oh, what a complete misunderstanding of him and of his death in particular. Here he shows so plainly that his death was no surprise to him. He tells them that he knows certain things about it. What are they? Well, here's the first. He knows when he's going to die. When's that? Well, this is how he puts it. Go and tell that fox Herod, Behold, I cast out devils and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. He repeats it. I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following. What's that? Well, that's just a proverbial way which was very common at that time of saying that he knows that he hasn't got much longer to live. It doesn't mean exactly and precisely three days, but it does mean a short period of time. Today, tomorrow, the third day. I haven't got long. My end is coming. He knew it. He's telling them. I'm going to die. Not now, but I'm going to. He knows when he's going to die. Secondly, he knows where he's going to die. It's all right, he says, and I can see the smile on his face as he says it. You tell me, he said to the Pharisees, that I'm going to be killed by Herod just here. It's not true. I'm not going to. I am going to be killed, but it isn't going to be here. It's going to be in Jerusalem. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish out of Jerusalem. He knows exactly where he's going to die. And thirdly, he tells them that he knows exactly how he's going to die. It's all right, he said, Herod isn't going to kill me. I'm not going to die at the hands of Herod. I'm going to die in Jerusalem. And I'm going to die as the result of the plot that you Pharisees, together with the Sadducees, and these Herodians and others are already plotting actively against me. You're going to get me up to Jerusalem and then you're going to put me on trial. You're going to plead with the Roman governor that if he really is a true servant of Caesar, that I'm a danger and a menace. You're going to stage a great play and a great occasion up at Jerusalem. And it will be thus as the result of a great public trial and as I've been, after I've been uh, submitted to all sorts of indignities and cruelties, then I shall be put to death. 
It will happen not here, but before the whole world in Jerusalem. And it will involve an exposure of all the foulness and the subtlety and the fox-like character of you Pharisees and scribes and all your collaborators in opposition to the kingdom of my God and my Father. That's what he tells them. Had you seen it here? Did you see what I meant at the beginning when I warned you to be careful when you read the scriptures? Turn but a stone, start a wing. He's telling them. He knows all about his death. It doesn't come suddenly upon him. He's aware of it all. He knows where, when, how. He knows everything about it. But still more important is his view of his death. Oh, he says, these people... You are talking about my death. You don't understand my death. You know nothing about my death. I'll tell you about my death. Listen to him. Here is the way he puts it. Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils and I do cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I shall be perfected. What's this? I shall be perfected. This is a very good translation. There are some people who say wrongly that he meant this. Behold, I cast out devils and I give cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I shall finish the work. He said nothing of the sort. This is in the passive tense. It is something that's going to happen to him. This is right. I shall be perfected. What is this? Well, you may prefer another translation, which can put it like this. Behold, I cast out devils and I do cures. Today and tomorrow and the third day, I am at the goal or I am led to the goal. The goal, the end, I shall be perfected. What's he mean? Oh, what he means is this. Casting out devils. Healings, teaching, what are they? They are not the goal, they are but preliminaries, they are but introductions. These are subsidiary, these are not the end, these are not the goal. He didn't come to teach only, as so many are telling us today. He didn't merely come to heal, as so many are telling us. He didn't merely come to cast out devils. What did he come? What's the goal? What's the end? How is he perfected? And there's only one answer. It is his death. You are talking about my death, he says. You're telling me to escape, to save my life. For if I'm killed, I can't go on teaching. If I'm killed, I can't go out casting out devils. If I'm killed, I can't go on healing. Save yourself. Get away. No, no, he says. You don't understand it. I'm going to die. But far from running away from it, I set my face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. Why? It's the goal. I shall be perfect. I'm not complete until that happens. What does he mean by this? He means by this that the end and his object in coming into this world was to die. That's what the Pharisees and Herodians never understood. 
That's what men and women who say they're in trouble and difficulties about the Christian faith never understand. They say, oh, I like his teaching. I like to follow his example. But that death of his, I can't get it. Ah, of course you can't. If you got that, you'd get everything. He came to do that. That's the goal. If you don't see that, all the rest is in vain. Why did he die? What was happening when he died upon the cross? Well, the Apostle Peter, you see, who at first was stumbled by his death and was disappointed and unhappy and miserable and felt the end had come and said with the others, we thought that it had been he that would have restored the kingdom to Israel, but he's been killed. Ah, later he's filled with the Spirit and he says, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. That's it. His death upon the cross was not an accident. It was according to the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God sent his son into this world to die. That's the goal. Listen to the evidence. We see Jesus as the author of the epistle to the Hebrews in the second chapter, verse 9, who has made a little lower than the angels, what for? For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every man. Did you notice how our Lord himself put it? In the twelfth chapter of John's Gospel, verse 23, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Glorified. What's he talking about? He's talking about his death. This is the most glorious thing in his history. Listen to him as he goes on. Now is my soul trouble, and what shall I say? Father, Save me from this hour? Shall I say that? No. But for this cause came I unto this hour. What's he doing in this world? Why has he come? Is it merely to teach? Is it merely to cast out devils? Is it merely to heal? No, no. He's come to die. To be a high priest. He's the sacrifice, the offering, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. There he's perfected. And only there. Today and tomorrow I do, I cast out devils and I do cures. And the third day I shall be perfected. I shall complete the work. I'll offer myself. I'll sanctify myself. I'll lay myself there and God will do the final act. My glorification, my perfection as the savior of the souls of men. That's how I do it. That's what it means. He is perfected as the savior. When your sins and mine were laid upon him. And God struck him and smote him. Punishing your guilt and mine in him. Oh, he says to these Pharisees, 
Go and tell your collaborator, your fellow fox, that you don't understand me, you don't know me, you don't know anything about my purpose. You can't kill me. There is only one who can. The one who is going to make me to be sin, though I know no sin. The one who is going to put the sins of men upon me and punish them. And make a sin offering of me. I am the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. I shall come to the goal. I'll come to the end for which I was sent. The work that I was sent to accomplish will be finished and will be completed. That is his teaching about his death. Have you seen it? Have you recognized its significance? His death is the way of salvation. It is by dying he saves. It's the goal. It's the center. It's the focus of it all. And to miss or to dispute or to deny that is to fail to know him as your savior. It is to die in your sins. So I would quietly draw these conclusions with you from this incident. No man can interfere with his purpose. Herod couldn't, the Pharisees couldn't, no one could, that's what he's telling them. The Father's plan is going to be carried out perfectly in his own time, in his own way, in his own place. He is going to die according to the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Herod can't stop it. No one could stop it. And so the final lesson is this. There is another section to his purpose. It is not yet completed. But... It will be completed. What is this? His coming back into the world to rule and to reign. His coming back to destroy his enemies, to gather his people unto himself. And what this message tells us is this. Nothing and no one can stop it. The march of science, the increase in knowledge, the godlessness of men is nothing. 
Herod and the Pharisees did their utmost to foil his plan. They couldn't. And man in the height of his folly will be equally unable to frustrate or to foil the future program of the Son of God. Let the world do what it wills in his own appointed time he will come. Riding the cloud of heaven surrounded by his holy angels. He will come. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will separate the sheep and the goats. He will take his people unto himself. And all who have rejected him will be sent to their everlasting and eternal perdition. Nothing can stop it. Today, tomorrow, the third day, the goal, the end, the absolute, it will come. What is the message? Isn't it obvious? Kiss the sun lest he be angry and he perish from the way, while his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they that put their trust in him. He is God the Son. He knows all. He has all power. If you attempt to fight him or to frustrate him, you will be crushed. There is nothing that can make him his purpose forego. Today, tomorrow, the third day, the goal, the consummation, the final judgment, the ushering in of the everlasting kingdom. My dear friend, have you seen him? Have you recognized him? Have you seen his glory? Have you seen his power? Have you seen his purpose? Have you seen the meaning of his death? Have you realized that your judgment and that of the whole world is in his hands? Oh, as you look at these miserable Pharisees and Herodians, See their unutterable folly. Turn away from them. Believe on him. Recognize his miracles, his power, all his claims. Fall at his feet. And give yourself unreservedly to him. The savior of your soul. The one who came to die for you. 
and the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings kiss the sun while there is still time. Amen.